0: This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Oh, hello and welcome to the Streetwise podcast. I am your host, Brock Wilbur. I'm also the editor-in-chief of The Pitch here in Kansas City, of which this podcast is an extension. Happy 2022, everyone. Are we in it? Are we in it? We're kind of in it. Uh, sorry that the podcast is a little late this week. Been a time, been a time with uh, Bernstein, our, uh, our little cat that uh, never really poses any problems, never really has any health troubles, doesn't make a lot of sound, just as sort of there and super cool and normal. Uh, he decided to have some kidney issues, and we had to be back and forth from the vet, and the emergency vet, starting from Christmas morning onward. Uh, and that'll just, that'll just play hardball with your feelings a little bit. Starting to realize that maybe it's in my best interest to not have kids, because I am an overprotective dad to a couple of little cats and a very stupid dog, uh, and I just... <laughs> Absolutely lose my mind over anything bad that's happening to them, Uh, especially because they can't communicate uh, what's going on, uh, except when they start yelling. And that's when me and the wife uh, go to war, go straight to the trenches. So everything is finally okay. Seems like he's great. He's on a new food uh, that promises to make him and his brother gain some weight. Uh, He lost a lot of weight while he was on the inside. uh, So that's good for him. But uh, Woodward. That is that is already just a brick of a cat right there. So uh, not looking forward to seeing how much more weight we can put on on that, that absolute chunk. Um, not that mortal love is never anything to scoff at. Anyway, we've got a great podcast back this week. Um, yeah, we've've we've got we've got a bunch of great stuff to get to. We've got next music Corner as per always. Uh, We have an interview with a director of a new documentary about Kansas City in the pandemic. I think you're really going to enjoy that one. Uh, But up first today, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment is doing a reading uh, from the latest magazine uh, from the pitch. uh, Barb Shelley's Midwest Missteps, um, sort of uh, looking at the broad landscape of what's sitting ahead in 2022 for Missouri and Kansas. And all the things that could go very, very wrong if we are not really on top of it. Uh, so uh, here is a reading of uh, maybe the most dire thing from the magazine this month, but uh, good
1: to be informed. Jason? Midwest Missteps. Political Pitfalls That Could Plague Our Year Ahead by Barb Shelley. It's that time again. You know, the time to recount the highs and lows of the year just past and take stock of what might be ahead. This annual ritual used to be more fun. Back before COVID-19 and Trumpism and anti-vaxism and the overbearing presence of Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. I've walked into many new years with optimism, others with ambivalence, and some with hilarity. I don't ever remember flipping the calendar page with quite the sense of dread I feel about 2022. But I could be wrong. I want to be wrong. So let's take a look at a few things going on in our little spot on the planet. The good, the bad, and the ugly. In reverse order. First, The ugly. I'm not wrong about this. The campaign season in Missouri is going to be horrible. The worst of it will be the race for the soon-to-be-vacant U.S. Senate seat currently held by Roy Blunt. Vying for the Republican nomination are, ta-da, disgraced former Governor Eric Greitens, after his invasion of privacy charge, his affair, and a laundry list of other violations, the unhinged Eric Schmidt, who we have covered at length as he spirals into cartoonishly evil policies, and St. Louis lawyer Mark McCloskey who achieved notoriety by threatening protesters with a gun and now risks suspension of his law license. That's not even the full list. You know a race is off the rails when one of the lesser evils in the mix is U.S. Representative Vicki Hartzler, who got her start in politics working to ban same-sex marriage in Missouri. We need to prepare for a barrage of the most repellent campaign ads imaginable, Greitens revisiting his glory days as a Navy SEAL, Schmidt bloviating about his presumed war on tyranny, and everybody shamelessly sucking up to Trump. Some Democrats are not so secretly pulling for Greitens to win the Republican primary on the theory that the sex scandal and shady campaign finance dealings in his past will steer voters toward the Democratic in the general election. Even Missouri Republicans have been accused of trying to kneecap his campaign. I'm not so sure about this. The Democratic field lacks a heavyweight candidate. Do we really want to risk the prospect of Greitens and Josh Hawley both representing Missouri and Washington? Throw in redistricting of congressional and legislative seats, plus the ladder-climbing race that's likely to ensue in the Missouri legislature, as columnist Jeff Smith described in the Missouri Independent, and Missouri politics becomes a toxic brew. In Kansas, Republicans will pull out all the stops to try to dislodge Democrat Laura Kelly from the governor's office. The likelihood that her Republican opponent will be State Attorney General Derek Schmidt means we will continue to confuse the Kansas Schmidt with the Missouri Schmidt. Even so, Kansas so far looks tame in comparison with Missouri. One wild card is a constitutional amendment that voters will see on the August ballot. If passed, it would open the door to the Kansas legislature going the way of Missouri and making abortion all but illegal in the state. I've talked to Kansans who hold out hope that voters might actually reject the amendment, which would be a clear win. But the issue will shade all of the rest of the politicking going on. Bad and getting worse. Let's talk for a minute about the dumpster fire that is the governance of the Kansas City Police Department. Count me as someone who thought Mayor Quentin Lucas was on the right track when he proposed making a portion of the police department's budget subject to negotiation with city officials to prioritize community-based services aimed at reducing crime. But Lucas pissed off the Northland Old Guard when he excluded their representatives from discussion of the ordinance. Then a judge said that the city couldn't mess around with police funding in the middle of a budget year. Now a Republican Missouri state senator has introduced legislation that would force Kansas City to give even more money to its governor-appointed overseers on the board of police commissioners, with no say over how it is spent. Meanwhile, it seems as though police chief Rick Smith will retire in the spring, though he'll get paid through August. He will likely receive accolades and sheet cake, never mind the anger and mistrust in the neighborhoods, the low morale in his department, and his inability to make a dent in violent crime. As for the police board, none of its members except for Lucas the only one accountable to Kansas City voters has publicly expressed remorse over the death of 26-year-old Cameron Lamb, who was shot in his own car in his own driveway. A judge last month convicted a police officer of involuntary manslaughter in Lamb's death. The testimony was damning, not just to the officer's actions but also of the police department and its chief. Prosecutors made a strong case that cops fabricated evidence to make it look like Lamb had a gun. The Kansas City Star reported that Smith, after the shooting, was recorded saying, "Everyone is good." bad guys dead. This will not get better just because Smith is reportedly leaving. A new chief, whether from inside or outside the department, will not have the backing to make necessary sweeping reforms from a board that mostly thinks the current chief is doing a fine job. And that board will continue to have support from a Republican-dominated state legislature and governor who are openly hostile to communities of color. Nobody is coming to save us, friends. The only course of action is for everybody to scream for local control so loudly that no local politician will dare oppose it and they hear our rage all the way out in Jefferson City. Because, ultimately, these poisoned relationships between police and community, hand-in-hand with the high crime rate, will drag down the city's business climate and quality of life. And finally, the good. Jackson County Prosecutor Gene Peters-Baker finished out 2021 with two breathtaking wins. The murder verdict of police officer Eric DeValkaner for Lamb's shooting marked the first time a Kansas City police officer was convicted of shooting a black man. As well, because of Baker's efforts, Kevin Strickland was released after 42 years in prison on a wrongful conviction. In a state where politicians routinely abuse their power and pursue ambitions at the expense of the people, Baker has shown that it's possible to succeed in office simply by doing the right thing. Cheers to her. Activists also kept winning in 2021. Prompted by KC Tenants, Stand Up KC, and the Heartland Center for Jobs and Freedom, The Kansas City Council in December approved an ordinance guaranteeing that tenants facing eviction are entitled to legal representation. Their victory should reduce the number of evictions and keep families sheltered. Speaking of activists, hundreds of people around Kansas City are quietly signing on to climate change initiatives. A regional climate action plan is now official. According to Mike Kelly, the Roland Park mayor who helped get the initiative started, more than 1,000 people got in on the making of it. Another bright spot, progressive women lawmakers, Democratic and a few Republican women in the Kansas and Missouri legislatures continue to speak out boldly and effectively on behalf of reproductive freedom, protection of children, quality education for all, and much more. I'd name names, but I worry about missing some. Last but not least among the tidings of good cheer, drive around the neighborhoods and you'll see old businesses sprucing up and new ones popping up. Way to bounce back from a pandemic, Casey. Here's to 2022.
0: And now, as always, it's time for Nick's Music Corner.
2: Hello, I'm Nick Basic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. It's a new year, and I'm happy to be back sharing some of the best local music with you all. Appropriately enough, the first track for 2022 is from musician and producer Joe Black, and it's entitled New Day. Off his new album, Black Gold, which hit Bandcamp on New Year's Day, it's the final track on the album. Featuring Irv de and Kim Keyes, the song is very, very appropriate for the start of the year, while also showing off the Grammy-nominated producers Studio Chops. Joe Black offers up the same aplomb at his own work as he's given to artists like Ariana Grande or Justin Bieber, crafting a masterfully uplifting piece of R&B. The lyrics are super positive, while not leaning into treacly sentimentality. The vocal work from Kim Keyes on the hook is stellar, and Irv de verses are tight, as always. You can find Joe Black's new album, Black Gold, on Bandcamp at j-o-b-l-a-q.bandcamp.com. Here's New Day.
3: It's a new season. Yeah, it's a new day. Counting our blessings, hands to the sky, give God all the praise. Yeah, it's a new season. Yeah, it's a new day. Counting them blessings, here's to the sky, thank God every day. They said we'd never be here to make it. Mistakes that we made don't define where we take it. Counting up my debts, God told me he paid it. People give advice, but be mad when you take it. They want to act holier than thou. But the actions got me questioning how Same one that got their hand up with the fake praise Wanna judge when they talk about you always? But it's a new day The sky is falling but the sun comes up in the morning And if it don't, we still gonna rise in the morning Heard the voice inside say it's okay to stop your morning Cause it's a new season, it's a new day, it's a new day
0: So um, one of the things that that will happen with little boy cats, uh, which helped us get into the position that I've been in with Bernstein, is that uh, boy cats have a history of kidney issues because they don't drink enough water. Uh, it's just a, a thing across the board. I've had friends say that they won't get boy cats anymore because they've had to deal with that. So I've always been real nervous about it. So around our house, there are a lot of little fountains, just a lot of fountains bubbling all the time for those cats uh, to avoid exactly the situation we found ourselves in. Now there are more. We have acquired more fountains. The transition here is that uh, we're talking to Blake A. Miller today, who is a documentary film director from here in Kansas City. Uh, He has a new film that is currently uh, kickstarting its finishing costs. Uh, We have a link to that here in the show notes. Um, but it's a documentary that he shot uh, during pandemic, uh, safely and distance, interviewing uh, people from across the city uh, about what they felt like they'd lost in that time. Um, and so uh, right now, the, the film is basically done, just getting together the last 10K or so that they need to wrap up post-production, sound, editing costs, so on and so forth to get it out there into the world. Uh, so here is my interview with him about his film, The City of Dried Fountains. See, I was going to tie it to a fountain at some point. That, it's, we got there. We got there.
4: Blake, welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Thanks, Brock, for having me on. Uh, I'm Blake Miller. I'm a writer-director out of Kansas City. I've been making films for a while now. Uh, born and raised here in Kansas City. Actually, I was born and grew up in Lee Summit, Blue Springs area. Uh, went to San Francisco State for film school. Got out of there, uh, did some freelance and some corporate video work inside and outside of Kansas City, which led me to the project I'm making now, which is the City of Dried Fountains. Um, it's a feature film about Kansas City, specifically Kansas City coming out of 2020. And it's all these different interviews from all these different people from Kansas City people that are in business, healthcare, students, retirees artists uh financial people just from all different walks of life talking about how they've gotten through covid not just professionally but more importantly personally um it's project why why the city of
0: dried fountains yeah
4: (laughs) yeah i know i was talking about producer i'm like is that grammatically correct should we said dry uh but of dried fountains i think it kind of goes the theme um you know Typically, when I have an idea for a movie, it's like three or four things that are all kind of random and fit together and just process of writing it. Sure. Um, but with this being a documentary, I made some short documentaries, but my goal hasn't really been docs mainly, um, but it came in some very weird circumstances, the ideas that are and uh, the very first idea was just that title, The City of Red Fountains. I thought it was very evocative of a certain theme being specifically grief and loss and love, obviously, and it's all about the city, too, so I thought it kind of matched up with that the best.
0: Now, you uh, you say that the, the film started with the loss that your grandparents experienced in 2019, so it's a COVID movie that starts pre-COVID. Explain that to me.
4: Yeah, so to explain it a little bit more succinctly, um, a lot of the themes of grief that are happening with the pandemic, I was kind of facing right before the pandemic started, so we lost my grandfather in spring of 2019, and then obviously a year later, almost a year to the day that we lost him was really when the national lockdown started. Um, so yeah, it just came in weird circumstances. I mean, going the first year without you know having a very close loved one in your life is always very hard, whether it's a grandparent or a sibling or a parent or a child even. Um, and then it's like, just as I was getting over that on the year anniversary, we hit the lockdown. So it just, I saw that theme playing out in the city, the city that I obviously love so much. I mean, I'm wearing a Charlie Hustle sweatshirt right now, uh, as we all kind of do in Kansas City, we dress like tourists, but yeah, I just saw the themes matching my personal life and also my life that I live here. Um, So I thought what better way to capture it than with filmmaking, which is a medium that I obviously love so much.
0: Now I'd never noticed this, and my wife noticed it because she was from California and moved here. uh, And I fought it for like a year. But why is it that everyone in Kansas City wears Kansas City stuff all the time? Because like (laughs) people make fun of that, and like it was the first time I'd heard that. And she was like, "You all do do that." And I was like, "I don't know what you're babbling about." Like everyone in New York has an I Heart New York thing. She's like, "No, that's only it's only the tourists. Everyone in KC just like constantly we." Oh, on the video thing behind me, there's a giant KC banner. <laughs> God damn it. Like I'm not I'm not, not arts. Yeah. Oh, and the KC banner. Yeah. Okay. Right. So we've got a lot of things going on, but like why is that why is that like why do we uh, why do we love that pride and or why is why do we feel the need to display it on our bodies at all times?
4: <laughs> it's a great question, man. Um I I think the city's got something really special. I mean, obviously I'm very biased. I love it. And I want to make movies about the city and these people for the rest of my life. But I think the city's just great. I think we kind of know we got a good thing, but the humility of a kind of a small town is still there, even though we're on a big kind of city landscape. Um, we got great things here. I, I think, yeah, we have the Chiefs. Yes, we have barbecue. Yes, we have a great art scene. <laughs> yes, we're kind of up and coming. We have a great alternative music scene that most people don't know about, especially the 2010s awesome music scene here um but i think most importantly we have is it's people and i think sure i you know like you i mean you obviously you've lived in several different places in your life i've gotten to travel a lot in the united states i've been really lucky too but i could genuinely say i've never met people like i've met them in kansas city um and that's really what makes a town in my opinion and that's again that's kind of what the movie's about too so i just think we got a lot of great people here it's great you know
0: we we have i think what chicago was pitched to me as before i moved there which is like it's all midwestern folks that wanna like smile and say hello to you uh, and tell you their life story but it's in a big city i was like chicago in practice uh, post 2007 is not truly that um <laughs> but like kansas city kind of is like this is still the place where everyone will talk to you when you're getting in an elevator but like it's too big to really be that sort of place is that is that where you think we fall are we the the chicago promise of old
4: (laughs) (laughs) i well you know what's i mean again i remember talking about growing up here i mean i remember in the 2000s not uh i hope i'm not gonna swear too much but just being not giving a shit about kansas city i mean i remember just Dude, like, Trent Green was the best. And I love Trent Green. I love Trent Green. But Trent Green was like the best thing we had going for us in, like, 2004 to 2007, 2008. I mean, I remember... love that you're you know,
0: apologetic I, about Trent Green. Like, <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. Like, to that man, I am sorry, but he was the best that we had. This, Dude, I, <laughs>
4: I mean, you know, now we got Patrick Mahomes, so it's kind of a way big, big difference there. But, uh, no, I mean, I remember, like, just, to be honest, being ashamed that I was from Kansas City because I obviously wanted to do filmmaking my whole life. Um, and just hating, like not hating it, but just not really being proud of where I came from. And then when I really when I moved to San Francisco and I moved to California and I actually didn't live here, it's like, oh man, I got to get back. Like I got to get out of here. Not that San Francisco or California is anything bad. It's beautiful in its own way. But it's just the, the people here, the places here. I mean, just the scene here, being able to walk in the river market in the mornings and just talk to random strangers or being able to go to the crossroads and go to the Plaza Art Fair, just go to all these different little places, go to the central branch of Kansas City Library. And everybody's just like you said, just so nice and so sweet and just just good. Um, Yeah.
0: Well, now that we've sufficiently sucked up to them, uh, let's talk about the crowdfunding campaign. No, (laughs) before we get into that, I'd love to know more about, you know, what is the thesis of your City of Sad Fountains movie? And what did you discover in the process of making it that surprised
3: you?
4: <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, you know, with a doc, it was like, with this specifically, I'm a big planner. I'm not a director that is like a Mark Duplass or J. Jay Duplass. I can't like improvise in the moment that well. I mean, I'm very much into planning and scripting and storyboarding and shot listing and doing all that. So making a documentary really scared me because... I had all these short films that were meticulously planned, and now I'm making a movie where I don't know where the hell it's going into. And I also did all myself up until now. Um, I shot it, directed it, lit it, did the sound, did the planning, financed it. I did everything just with me and cut the movie together myself too. Um, So I think it was a process of finding the thesis. I knew the themes of grief and loss I wanted to hit, but it's really a process of letting the people tell their story. And the things. And so,
0: what you're trying to capture is sort of like this slice of life for COVID period, which I think you probably also thought was done earlier. Like, okay, there's an endpoint, and it sort of seems like there might not be the cleanest endpoint, but you are really capturing, like, hopefully, what is a thing that that people will look back on and be like, that was a very, no pun intended, isolated period of, of the human experience. And you were hoping to capture what happened within that.
4: Yeah, certainly. That was certainly the premise. and But what, what surprised us going into it and cutting it together, you know? I mean, we have people in the movie. We have Hartzell from 965 and on the morning show, runs the morning show now. We have Pierce from the greeting committee. We have Pete Grigsby from KBC 9 News. We have all these great people. We have Mr. Brock Wilber from The Pitch, a great interview. It's very crucial to the movie, might I add, and I'm not sucking up it as Brock, you will see. I um, cannot
0: wait to see how I'm foundational to what we're doing here with my <laughs> fucking bullshit, but sure.
4: <laughs> no, but it was like, you know, most of the people that I interviewed for the movie, I was meeting for the first time. I mean, again, going back to how great people of Kansas City are, it's like, hey, I'm making this film. I mean, that's how you and I met, was I'm making this film with Jim And It was like, yeah, I got an hour to Kill on the weekend, let's do it. Um, Where so I would, am
0: I going to go? We're in lockdown.
4: Like, sure. Yeah, exactly. And it was just, you know, it was obviously just me and the interview subject in a room, so, socially distant. But to what I learned about through the process of making it was, you know, I think without giving the movie away, the themes of grief and also the themes of faith or spirituality or religion, either the absence of that or the inviting that in and how that gets you through grief and through loss. Um, is universal obviously it's probably like a well, no shit sherlock but to me it was really surprising to see all these people some people i've known for my whole life some people i've just met for the first time talking about different things they've lost through covid or after covid and how they went from there and just the hope that that spawned and um just god this sounds so pretentious i so love this just the beauty and the pain brock um of that it was it was great no it just it
3: to, to be fair I, to you I, I just stories. cannot
0: wait to see what hartzel thinks god is like I, <laughs> I i feel like i know him pretty well but i have no idea which direction that's going so i would love to hear what he's uh what he's bringing to the table um
4: du-du-du-du. blake you still with me and two other people that I- they're kind of crucial plot points in the movie. So I don't want to say they are. There's four gotcha. images that were so hard to cut down because they were all these anchors of the story going through from a structural standpoint. Um but yeah Hartzel was so funny. Hartzell would Hartle would say something and then have me, you know, so emotional and the next thing I was like oh my god I'm gonna crack up laughing and be on the mic. But anyways
0: he is very good at what he does. Um so yes this brings us to what's bringing you into the news this week it's that you have launched the crowdfunding campaign to finish the film and and most people don't know this like when you see a kickstarter for a movie or whatever it is usually not somebody being like boy gullicker, geez i want to go out and make a thing it's usually like hey we've already finished it in terms of shooting it the finishing costs are what we are trying to cover now basically like the editing the the color correction, the sound, so on and so forth, because it's like making its own second movie, but like you've already done several years of work. You've got this all in the can, you've edited things and you're like, this is just the cost and, and the, the price tag of making it real so it can be out in the world. So tell us about like what you are looking for here, where people can find the project and, you know, in general, what you're hoping to raise.
4: <laughs> yeah. So we are on a platform called Seed&Spark, very similar to Indiegogo or Kickstarter, but just specifically, this platform is just for filmmaking. And like you said, um, we are just raising finishing funds. So like we've talked, the movie's already done, it's already completed, but there's some technical things we need to do to master it to actually put it out in the world. Um, So we're raising $10,480 for the film. As of recording this, that number's climbing, but we're about Twelve hours into the first day, just a little under, and we already have eighteen percent of that goal raised. So, uh, we're doing really good on the numbers there. But we definitely need a lot of help. Um, it's going to be located over at fun slash the city of dried fountains But if you just look up the city of Dried Fountains on Google, we
0: we are linking it in the show notes. People beautiful. Will be able to look like it. It's fine. <laughs>
4: Beautiful. But yeah, it's it's a movie, of course, that's very near and dear to my heart. But more importantly than that, it's a movie about our city, our people. And it's a movie featuring a place that I love, but you never really see in film. I mean, you don't see Kansas City or Kansas Cityans in documentaries or narrative features all that much. And this movie definitely services that and gives it a voice. So I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud to get it done. I'm really proud to uh, raise the money to get it finished right. Blake, where can people follow you on the social medias? Yeah. So I have Instagram. I am at underscore Blake, a Miller. And then if you want to follow our films page on Instagram is at T C O D F and on Twitter, it is at T C O D F underscore film.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Uh, We hope that this uh, gets across the finish line, obviously because Brock Wilbur is a foundational interview apparently in In what it is. I cannot wait to see what that is because that was just a fun afternoon of fucking about in your apartment uh, and uh, not being able to park anywhere near you despite (laughs) it being in lockdown. Uh, Kansas City is a magical, magical place. Thank you so much for talking to us today.
4: (laughs) Thank you, Brock. Talk soon, man. Appreciate it. Talk soon.
0: And now, as we are cleaning out some of the backlog, just to kick the year off here, uh, we've got a bonus reading from Jason. Uh, This is from Abby's uh, feature on Procession, uh, the really innovative documentary film about uh, priests and sexual abuse in Kansas City, uh, where the victims uh, acted out the reenactments of its... It's a really, really powerful film, but obviously here at the top, putting in a uh, trigger warning for uh, a lot of uh, sexual assault stuff. Uh, just be aware that that's there if you're proceeding forward. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. In the spotlight,
1: Procession details the healing process of six adult survivors of sexual assault perpetrated by Kansas City-based Catholic priests by Appiel Olchesi. Trigger warning. This article discusses sexual assault, abuse, and trauma. One of the first things that strikes you about Procession is the title card. It's superimposed in the Exorcist-style font over a shot of an altar boy standing in a choir loft, backlit by a stained glass window. The image is arresting, but what really stands out is the filmmaking credit. Rather than listing a single director, the card includes 22 names. Columbia-based documentarian Robert Greene's name doesn't appear until the start of the fourth line. At the very top are the names of six men, none of whom are filmmakers by trade, Joe Eldred, Mike Foreman, Ed Gavigan, Dan Lorreen, Michael Sandridge, and Tom Viviano. These men are all survivors of sexual assault perpetrated by Catholic priests who are active in the Kansas City St. Joseph Diocese. It's clear the story you're about to see doesn't belong to any one person. Instead, it's an active collaboration to tell the stories of the survivors and help them heal. Their voices had to guide the process, Green says. That wasn't hard, because they're brilliant men, and once we got going they were excited to take on that challenge. Procession follows Eldred, Foreman, Gavigan, Lorreen, Sandridge, and Viviano as they work with Green and a drama therapist, Monica Finney. The men's goal is to claim and reshape the childhood traumas that have impacted their lives for decades through acting out dramatic scenes that put the power back in their hands and allow them to respond to their experiences. Green says the approach may be different from a typical documentary, but the intention is the same. It's a lot of what documentaries are anyway, Green says. You're listening to the people who are on screen, It's just a little more focused on a goal, and that goal is to help each other. Eldred says the open creative alliance between the participants and Green created an atmosphere of trust that allowed everyone to be as vulnerable and supportive as they needed to be, not only for the success of the project, but for their own growth. It's hard to trust after being abused like we all were. It's hard to be vulnerable and put yourself out there, Eldred says. When Robert stepped out of being the sole director and allowed us to tell our own stories and gave us the freedom to say no or yes... It allowed me to own my story and go as far as I felt comfortable going. He never pushed me farther and harder, which allowed me to go farther and harder, and to explore as much as I could. A Crisis and an Opportunity Green says that the journey to making Procession started when his previous documentary, Bisbee 17, was making festival rounds. In that film, Green worked with current-day citizens of Bisbee, Arizona, to reenact a harrowing event from 1917, the forced deportation of 1,300 striking mine workers across state lines. I got a question during a Q&A where someone asked if I had therapists on the project. My answer was completely inadequate, Green says. Reflecting on that, my sister-in-law told me to read Bessel van der Kolk's book The Body Keeps the Score, and I learned that one method for helping work through trauma is staging things theatrically and using drama therapy effectively. She told me, this is what you've been doing your whole career. I realized this was both a crisis and opportunity at the same time. Green says this sudden realization gave his filmmaking a new sense of purpose, one he was eager to explore further. I thought, what's the point of doing these movies? If I've really been doing this all along, why not actually make it therapeutic and try to help, Green says. Green explains that at the same time he was starting to engage with this subject in 2018, news was coming out about the history of abuse in the Kansas City St. Joseph Diocese, simultaneous to the release of abuse findings in Pennsylvania following a two-year grand jury investigation. Looking into these events led Green to find the August 2018 press conference at Open's procession in which Viviano, Sandridge, and Foreman addressed their abuse alongside lawyer Rebecca Randalls. I was completely moved by these guys, Green says. It was the lightning bolt that happens at the beginning of a project when everything I've been thinking about suddenly hits, and I had a desire to reach out. Eldred wasn't part of the press conference Green saw, but was invited to join the project by Randalls after Green contacted her. What drew me to it was the thought of meeting other guys like me, Eldred says. Ultimately, when I began to understand the scope of the film, I saw it could help so many people, not just men who'd been abused, but anyone who had trauma in their background. They get me, and I get them. Many of Green's previous films have involved elements of performance or reenactment. This time, however, the process was different and more intentional. Green says that from the very beginning, it was important that trained professionals and people with connections to the men involved have active influence. The role of therapists in the project was essential, Green says. Monica Finney, Rebecca Randalls, and therapist Sasha Black are all trauma-trained. Their skepticism and doubt, and ultimately support, were really important in guiding the process. Over the course of the film, the six men are asked not only to re-engage with traumatic events from their past in the hope of overcoming them, but to take some big emotional risks in order to help each other. One such risk involved Viviano, Sandridge, and Lorene willingly donning vestments to play the roles of abusive Catholic clergy in scenes staged by the other men. Seeing Sandridge, Viviano, and Lorraine in the costumes of their abusers feels both shocking and moving in the strength and selflessness it displays. At one point you hear Michael say, Why did I say yes? Because Ed Gavigan asked me to do it, Green says. Could Ed have ever gone through the process of what he does with anyone other than Michael? I don't think so. Could Mike Foreman have unleashed his fury onto anyone other than Tom? I don't think he could have. It's a testament to the guys who took on those roles and said, I'm here. Give it to me. Do it. Eldred says that willingness to share each other's journeys created a unique and vital bond between him and his fellow survivors. I can't stress how liberating that was to not be alone, Eldred says. In your mind, the Titanic has sunk and you're the only one in that lifeboat out on the open ocean. Now there are other men in the boat who know me, know my face. They get me and I get them. Near the end of the film, Eldred returns to one of the sites of his abuse, Nativity of Mary Parish in Independence, Missouri. In the parish hall, Eldred reads a letter addressed to his 10-year-old self, his age at the time of his abuse, personified by actor Tarek Trobaugh, who stands in as the youthful proxy for all of the men. It's a heartbreaking, direct, and vulnerable moment Eldred says was years in the making. I tried to connect with 10-year-old Joe for so long. When that opportunity came up, I took it as a personal challenge, Eldred says. Over the course of a few weeks, the letter came out. 10-year-old Joe finally had his voice, and Joe today reconnected with him on a real level. Eldred says the outcome was transformational, allowing him to finally start bridging the gap between the child he was and the adult he's become. I feel the healthiest and most centered I've been, he says. Reading it in the church, Robert left it totally up to me to say, no, that's too hard. But it felt right. The most important experience of my life. Before its theatrical release November 12th, Procession premiered at a number of film festivals, beginning with the Telluride Festival in Colorado last summer. Eldred says the experience of seeing the film with an audience was nerve-wracking, but rewarding. I didn't know what to expect, and I definitely didn't know how big it was to go to Telluride. Before then, I'd watched it with my wife in my living room, Eldred says. It's a surreal experience in that you put yourself out there, but the only people who have seen it are people who care about you. The reception, however, has been unanimously positive and affirming. Each of the screenings I've been to ends with a standing ovation, and it's humbling to see that people care enough to watch these strangers go through the process we did. Eldred says. Green says the experience of making Procession has made him see the importance of addressing mental health in his own life. I'm in therapy for the first time in my life because of this film. It's not just because making it was hard, though it was, Green says. I see the possibility of therapy. I see the potential of therapy. I can address my own past, empowered by what I see these men doing. That's the most important experience of my life. Eldred says he's hopeful the film will help further conversations around mental health, sexual abuse, and trauma, Especially for men, it's not currently socially acceptable to talk about being sexually assaulted, Eldred says. There's so many people walking around with secret traumas. I hope husbands can talk to their wives about what's happened to them, or children can talk to their parents. I hope and pray those traumas are discussed. Green agrees, adding he hopes the film helps filmmakers to better tell important, emotionally vulnerable stories in a way that respects the subject's experiences and needs. Hopefully seeing what these guys have done will help others take some of the same steps I've taken. Green says. The agreement is we're making something together. That's not what documentaries used to be, but it's what they're becoming more and more. I think filmmakers can learn from what we pulled off here.
0: And that has been the Streetwise podcast from The Pitch in Kansas City. I was your host, Brock Over. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I am really looking forward to this year. I think that things are going to turn around soon, sooner rather than later. Concerts and things that I was looking forward to keep getting canceled and that's probably for the best because everyone i know is getting sick it it feels bleak but i i have such optimism i'm coming into this year with excitement and i'm sharing it with you and i we're just gonna we're gonna kick some ass let's go kick some ass together anyway check out the pitchkc.com each and every day for the coverage that we are doing about the news and stories that matter to you the people of kansas city uh thank you guys so much for listening thank you for being there Here we go into my third year at The Pitch. This will be the best one yet. Um, Pitch in and we'll make it through. Take care of each other out there. Bye, 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 bye.